How's everyone doing? Welcome to summer. It's been nice. Did you guys all lose five pounds because of the heat? <laughs> I heard some groans. I heard some yes. Uh, so good to have you guys here with us tonight. My name is Jamie, and I'm one of the assistant pastors. Just want to welcome you here tonight. Thank you so much for spending this beautiful Saturday with us. We're so glad that you guys are here to kick off our summer series. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, before I do, uh, I just want to talk about last week a little bit. Um, last week, uh, Pastor Matt, our kids pastor, and his volunteers had Camp Crosspoint. And uh, it was a whole week long, and they had almost like 50 kids every night. And then on Friday, we had kind of like a, a, a big family barbecue, and it was like torrential downpour, so we brought the barbecue and all the inflatables inside, and it was a whole lot of fun. There's a ton of people who came here to kind of check that out, and a bunch of new families that we got to connect with. And then last weekend, we had our family service. Now, if you weren't here for the family service, you missed out on something so special. It was a lot of fun. We got to laugh as a church, and it was so good. But, um, so before uh, we kind of continue on today, I would just love to give honor to, to Matt and to his, uh, his kids' ministry volunteers. Man, it was so good. Yes. Yes. Oh, so good. Uh, and, and Matt is just doing an incredible job with kids ministry. Like when you average like 100 kids a weekend, that's pretty crazy. You're, you're doing something right. And so um, I know I speak on behalf of Matt when I say thank you for being a church that loves kids and that loves kids ministry. Um, because we, we value kids and we value the families that they bring in, right? Like some of our kids are our biggest bringers. That's not a lie. And so continue to pray for Matt and his teams as they uh, serve our kids every weekend. Um, but yeah, we are in the first week of a series called Summer Mixtape. And uh, I'm so glad that you guys are here to kind of see this first weekend. Uh, South Campus, we're so glad that you are here with us as well. And everyone checking out online, everyone say hi, South Campus. We love our Southers. We love our Southers. Uh, so glad that you guys are all here to jump into this. Um, when I was young, um, I lived in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, and my best friend's name was Craig Hackett. Uh, and my dad was a banker, and we kind of moved around quite a bit. Uh, and uh, we actually ended up moving from Dartmouth to Sydney, Cape Breton. And I was devastated, uh, both my friend Craig and I, because all of a sudden we were ripped apart, we were separated. Uh, my BFF was being taken from me. He was staying and I was going. And so when I went to Sydney, we decided that we would be pen pals. Who had a pen pal, like either now or when you were young? Raise your hand, South Campus. If that's you, raise your hand. Uh, yeah, a lot of us had pen pals. Uh, and so this was like the mid-90s or so. And uh, we thought that we would take advantage of technology with our pen palmanship between one another. And uh, so what we did is we both had these ghetto blasters. I called them ghetto blasters. You might have called them boom boxes or stereos or whatever you call them. But we, we both had these ghetto blasters that had a microphone and a record button. And so what we decided to do, instead of writing letters to one another, because that's like a pretty archaic piece of communication, uh, we, we decided to take advantage of technology. And so what we did is we bought a blank cassette tape. And what we did is we mailed that back and forth to one another. And so what we would do is we'd put this blank tape in our stereo, and we would actually press the record button and dictate our letters to one another. 
And so instead of writing, we just actually just talked to one another. And of course, we would uh, send it back and forth, and we would record over what we had, so our parents never ever heard it, what was going on. Uh, and then, uh, but in the middle of these letters, what we would do is we would include our current favorite song. And so if we, we would just like to share with one another what we were listening to. And this was the mid-90s, and so if you wanted to record your, if you want to have your favorite song, you'd either have to buy a cassette or you'd have to record it off the radio, right? Somebody, somebody knows what I'm talking about? And so what we would do, you'd have to like sit down for hours on end listening to the radio, and as soon as you knew your song would come on, you would have to hit record. So it was quite a process. And so we would actually, in this way, uh, give each other kind of like our mixtapes to one another, kind of our favorite songs, and that's how we would share them with one another. Because that's kind of what these mixtapes are all about. It is way back when, uh, and I say that as a 35-year-old person, way back when, when we had to use this archaic piece of technology called the stereo, um, these cassettes, way back when, if you wanted to have all of your favorite songs in one place, what you'd have to do is take a blank cassette, and you'd have to record from your, all your other cassettes and put all your favorite songs in one place. Now we can just make playlists really quick, right, and just take from the internet what we want to listen to. But back then, we had to go through the painstaking process to steal and record and overdub one song from one cassette into another. It was quite a process. And so that's kind of where these mixtape, this mixtape idea came from. And if you go on vacation, well, you might make a vacation playlist or mixtape. Or, or maybe if, if you are heartbroken, all of a sudden you decide that you want to make uh, a mixtape of some like, like, you know, slow ballads to kind of, just that's what it feels like. It kind of balances your emotions, right? Or maybe if, uh, if you were kind of in the dating stage, you might... Uh, make like a slow jams kind of mixtape, right? When you go to the drive-in or whatever the case may be. I'm speaking from experience, but uh, don't, don't hold that against me. Jesus has forgiven me since. Um, but what you do is when you have your favorite songs, instead of going through one album and fast-forwarding and rewinding just to get to that one favorite song, you can record it and put it on a mixtape. And so that's kind of where we're getting this idea for our summer mixtape, is that throughout the next, you know, eight or nine weeks, Throughout the summer, we're going to actually be looking at a whole bunch of songs that are in the Bible. And so we're going to make our own mixtape as a church. We're going to be looking at all this kind of different music in God's Word, and we're going to be talking about it. We're going to be pulling out some themes from it. We're going to be pulling out uh, some things that are applicable to our lives. And so um, the, the Bible has about 180 different songs in it. Uh, about 150 of those are in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is completely comprised of songs written by David and a few other authors. Um, and then there's an, a, a whole book that is just one long song called Song of Songs. And it's kind of this very intimate, kind of lascivious uh, love song between uh, a man and a woman. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty graphic. I'll let you read that on your spare time. Um, and then there's funeral dirges, and there's, there's celebration songs, and there's songs of praise, there's, there's battle songs, and there's kind of all this, this whole mixtape of songs found within God's word. And so we're going to be digging through these throughout the whole summer. And so grab your Sony Walkman, get out your Bible, and turn to Exodus chapter 15. 
If you've got your Bible um, or if you need to swipe right and get to that thing, that's all right. You can do that too. We're going to be in Exodus 15, and then a little bit later on, we're going to be in John chapter 9, so you can kind of get those ready. And so I want to give us a quick recap of what's happened in the first 14 chapters of Exodus. Most of us probably know the story of the Egyptians and the Israelites and the 10 plagues and all that kind of stuff, right? So let me just try to give us a quick rundown because it's really important for us to know this before we get into this song in Exodus 15. So uh, the Israelites have been uh, slaves for 430 years under Egyptian rule. And God calls Moses to be his spokesperson to try to get the Israelites out of 400 years, 430 years of slavery. And so basically, there, to make a long story short, there's these 10 times that Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, would you just let God's people go? And every time he says no, a plague comes and kind of either wipes out livestock or drives everyone crazy and all this kind of stuff happens. This happens 10 times. And on the 10th time, uh, Pharaoh, in kind of his grief and in distress and in pure frustration, he decides to let the the Israelites go. He says, just get out of here. Just get out of my sight. And so this has taken us to chapter 15. And so the Egyptians, or so the Israelites, what they do is they're like, all right, great. Let's make our way to the promised land. So they travel throughout Um, out of Egypt, and they finally get to the Red Sea. And they're like, oh, man, this is going to take us forever to go around the Red Sea in order to get to the promised land, the place that God has given us. And so what God does, and most of us probably know this story, what he does is he parts the Red Sea in such a way so that there's walls of water on either side of them. And over a million, like millions of people, uh, they basically cross the Red Sea. They walk on the seabed, and they cross all the way to the other side. Now, Seeing a million-plus people go across, like, a sea would take a long time, right? So during this time, the Egyptians, they have a change of heart, and they decide that they want to pursue the Israelites and kill them. And so what they do is they chase after them with their horses and their chariots. And basically, as soon as they get to the Red Sea, the last of the uh, Israelites have crossed. And they say, well, let's do the same thing. And, and all of a sudden, the Egyptians take their horses and their chariots, and they pursue them, and they try to cross the Red Sea. As soon as they do this, God kind of lets up holding the waters, and the, the waters basically swallow up the Egyptians. Okay? You with me? Sorry, that's a lot of recap, but so important. And so this is a song that comes immediately after this great miracle that God has given to them. And so this song in Exodus 15, this is actually the very first song of the Bible. This is the very first song that's found in the Bible. Not only that, but this song is actually the earliest written and recorded song of all time, like of of humankind. It's that Old And it's the Hebrews have it as an oral tradition that they sing it every year because of what God did for them in the desert. And the song in Exodus 15 is written in three stanzas. And uh, do you guys know what anthropomorphism is? Sure you do. Uh, I had to Google it. Um, And anthropomorphism is when you take a deity or a god and you give them a human-like characteristic. Okay? And so each one of these stanzas in this song, and there's three of them, 
give God a human-like characteristic, as if God were a human with them, okay? And so let's, let's, uh, let's take a look at this first stanza. This is Exodus 15, starting at verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, and this is called the Song of Moses. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and army he has hurled into the sea. The finest of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters gushed over them, and they sank to the bottom like a stone. And so this first stanza is an anthropomorphism, or it's giving God the character of being a hero, of, of, of their rescuer. He uses these personal pronouns, and he uses these words to say, God is my hero. And in this stanza, it talks about what God did for them in this moment. God is our rescuer. He is our hero because of what he has done. This great feat, and he swallowed up the enemy. And so God doesn't fight, you know, to oppress or incite violence, but rather he fights for his people when they are helpless against the enemy. And so this is the rescuer that that Moses and his people are singing about. This first stanza talks about him being a rescuer because of what he has done. And the second stanza moves to more of who he is. And so let's read the next. This is Exodus 15, starting at verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, smashes the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow those who rise against you. You unleash your blazing fury. It consumes them like straw. At the blast of your breath, the, po- the waters piled up. The surging waters stood straight like a wall. In the heart of the sea, the deep waters became hard. The enemy boasted, I will chase them and I will catch up with them. I will plunder them and consume them. I will flash my sword. My powerful hand will destroy them. But you blew your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord, glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders? You raised your right hand, and the earth swallowed our enemies. Can you imagine millions of people singing this together for the first time. Like, this is a crazy story that has just happened in their lives, and they begin to sing these words in front of everyone. So this stanza talks about God as being sovereign. It talks about God being supreme. If you have your Bible and you're writing stuff down, you can write that down. God is our sovereign king. And what the stanza does is it, is it begins to contrast man and God. And it says that this is who God is, and this is who man is. And in contrast, our God is so great. He is our creator. He is magnificent. He has accomplished these crazy things. He's unmatchless, and he's divine. He's, as our creator, he has this power that's beyond our own. God is our sovereign king. And then we make it to the third stanza of this song. It says, with your unfailing love, you lead the people that you have redeemed. In your might, you guide them to your sacred home. The peoples hear and tremble. Anguish grips those who live in Philistia. 
The leaders of Edom are, are terrified. The nobles of Moab tremble. All who live in Canaan melt away. Terror and dread fall upon them. What I love about these words is that they're giving us the names of these places that are basically between the Red Sea and the Promised Land. These are enemy camps. And this song is saying, because of what God has just done for us, because of who he is, all the other enemies are going to begin to be terrified. They, they hear the rumors of what happened, and they begin to tremble. Continuing on, verse 16. The power of your arm makes them lifeless as stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you purchased pass by. You will bring them in, and you will plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, reserved for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And this stanza talks about God as our future hope. He's talking about this is what God is going to accomplish in and around us because of who he is, because of his goodness, because he is our rescuer, because he is our sovereign king, he is also our future hope. And so they sing this stanza about God being our future hope. And so this song becomes a really good template for us to understand why we worship. This song becomes a great template for the other songs that we're going to be talking about for the next eight or nine weeks. Because it not only tells about stuff that God did, but it talks about who he is. It talks about God's character as our king and our rescuer and our future hope. And we can't just worship God because of what he's done. We worship God because of who he is. So let me talk about that. What does that even mean? What, what does that even mean to us? Um, one of my favorite hashtags recently has been something called the What the Fluff Challenge. And uh, if you haven't seen this, go on your social media when you get home and just look up what the fluff. And it's this hilarious thing where pet owners are playing tricks on their cats and dogs. And so what they do is they stand in a doorway, okay, and they get their pet, their dogs, uh, to sit down in front of them. And they hold up these blankets. And they go one two, three, and on the third, they throw it up in the air, and they hide around the corner, and the, the blanket falls, and they film the, the dog's reaction. I can't explain it very well, so let's take a look at a few examples, shall we?
So that's, that's good for a laugh. Well, I, I totally get that. But what I love about this is that I find that this is a reflection of our worship sometimes. Is that uh, when we see God, we're all just like ready to go and we're ready to worship. We're ready to bring our best when God is, is living and moving and breathing in our midst. And as soon as it seems like he's gone, as soon as it seems like he stops moving, as soon as it seems like he's not healing and providing and doing all the things that God is supposed to do, all of a sudden we're like, we don't know what to do with ourselves. And we have this very dog-like reaction where we're looking around going, where is he? What's going? What's happening? Where is God? And God is saying, yeah, I might look like I'm gone, but where is your worship? Like, where is, where are you when God seems like he's missing? And where is our worship? And I would call this circumstantial worship. Sometimes we become circumstantial worshipers. Whereas that we only ever seem to give God our worship when our circumstances are favorable. When God provides for us, we can worship. When God does some miraculous healing in our lives or in the life of someone around us, you know, we can worship easily. And when God uh, reveals himself in such an incredible way, and all of a sudden it's like, well, we, I can worship like that. But what about the times that God is quiet? What about the times where it doesn't feel like he's working and moving? What about the times where it seems like he's distant? When that happens, sometimes our worship gets pretty stagnant. And so what we need to do is we need to stop being circumstantial worshipers. And we need to not just worship what Jesus does for us, but we need to be, be worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, which is worshiping Jesus for who he is, not just what he does for us. Somebody say amen. And so this is a hard thing, and I'm not saying that it's easy to worship Jesus in every situation. That's not what I'm saying. But we need to begin to understand what it means to worship from a place of knowing who God is and our trust in him, in him and the faithfulness that comes along with being a worshiper because sometimes it's going to feel silent. You know, when our relationships are hard, when our health is bad, when our bank accounts are empty, when we're having a tough time with our kids, when you flunk that exam, it feels like, oh, God, where were you? And so I can't, well, you know, we get into this habit of not being able to worship because of the circumstances in our lives. But that's not what God has called us to do. He has not called us to worship the things that Jesus does for us. He calls us to worship who he is, his great character. We get to worship God as our rescuer. God as our sovereign king. And God as our future hope. There's this incredible story in John chapter 9 where there is this uh, beggar who has been blind for life. And everyone in the town knows him. He, he's been in the same spot begging for years and years and years over and over again. And this great miracle happens. This is John chapter 9. We're going to start right from verse 1. And I'm going to be skipping a few verses. So read along in the back with me. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Verse 6, then he spit on the ground. He made mud with the saliva and spread the mud over the man's eyes. And then put little cucumbers on them and he laid down. I'm just kidding, that didn't happen. Verse 7, he told them, go wash yourself in the, the pool of Siloam. So the man went and he washed and came back seeing something miraculous happened. 
Verse 8, his neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, no, that's me. Like, that's me, that just happened. It's funny how the people are, are all of a sudden, the people who can see are all of a sudden blind to this man's miracle. Verse 10, they asked, well, who healed you? What happened? And he told them, the man that they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and I washed, and now I can see. Then they took the man, this is verse 13, they took the man who had been blind to, to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, he put mud over my eyes, and when I washed away, I, I could just see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. Notice how the people and the Pharisees, uh, they, they don't even really care that this man was healed. Notice that they see this man, and they don't even really care that something miraculous happened. They seem to overlook the fact that this man has been healed, who has been blind for his entire life, and all of a sudden can see. They just care about who, they're finding out who this culprit was, right? Who was it that healed him? That's, that's what they're concerned about. Verse 18. This is my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, by the way. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man that had been blind and could now see, so they called his parents. <laughs> right? Any teachers, teachers in the house? Have you ever called into question, like, a kid's character because of something that they told you? Like, I, I didn't get to finish my homework because a tornado hit my house. And the teacher, you know, or whoever, you look at your, your kid's friends, and you're like, listen, kid, I'm not buying that, right? I'm going to ask your parents about that. And you kind of call the, this kid's, you know, the, the kid's character into question. And so the Pharisees are like, oh, I'll just call this guy's parents, and we'll, we'll get them to confirm things. And so they ask him, verse 19, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he see? I love how he's asking the people who can see, is this, is this your son? Does this look right to you? Does this look like the guy? His parents replied, look, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him, look, he's old enough to speak for himself. And so the Pharisees kind of make the walk of shame. They kind of are told off a little bit by the parents. They're like, if he can see, he can see. Verse 24, they called the man again who had been blind and they asked him, what did Jesus do? How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, which is probably the first time that he's ever used that word. I told you once, don't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? My, uh, my heal, he, sorry, he healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from. And so this blind man is drawing their attention to the fact that they don't care about what happened. They, they just care about calling Jesus' character into question. Right? They're more interested in who this person was than what happened. He performs this great miracle, and the Pharisees can't do anything but call Jesus into question. Verse 31, and we know, this is the blind man continuing to speak, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but... He is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. That's a good verse. Let me read that again. God is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. As worship and obedience come first, and then the outcome comes second. 
It's not just about what God does for you. It's about who he is and why he loves you and why he does these miraculous things. And so it's, it's easy for us to see the miracles and the wonders of Jesus. But we understand them when we understand his character and why he does these things. Jesus heals us because he's compassionate. He provides for us because he loves his kids. He blesses us because he is our creator. He loves us because uh, he loves us for who we are because we're created in that way. Jesus transforms us because he wants us to be more like him. Jesus comforts us in grief and frustration because of his mercy. Jesus looks beyond our mistakes because he is forgiveness. Jesus looks past our shame and sin because he is the epitome of love. That is who God is. That is why we worship. Not for the stuff that he gives us, although it's great to praise his name when something great happens, but it's because of who he is that God works in and around our lives. Worship should become easy for us when we recognize the character of God and the goodness of Jesus. We should worship him in a place of expectation, not from a place of resolution, right? We should worship Jesus because we expect him to do great things in and around us because his plans are good for us and they're not meant to harm, for, harm us. And sometimes we don't understand them. And sometimes it's hard to worship in some of those circumstances. Sometimes it's hard to worship in the waiting. Sometimes it's hard to worship when we don't know what the conclusion is. But we need to worship from a place of expectation and not from a place of resol resolution. Jesus wants our worship for who he is, not just what he provides for us. He wants us to bookend our lives in worship. It's kind of like he wants us to bookend every situation in our lives in worship. But if you know something is coming, right, if there's a situation coming in your life and you just don't know how you're going to handle it and you begin to get maybe nervous about it or anxious about it, worship. And you're just like, well, I can't worship when I feel anxious and when I feel nervous. But, but if you give that to God, it sets you up to understand his good and perfect character. And then when, whatever the resolution of that thing is, we're already prepared because we have worshipped the character and the goodness of our God. And we begin to see a resolution happen in his will and in his way. We need to book bookend our lives and the situations that happen to us in worship, even when it's hard. What I love about the Bible is that there's always these things that just kind of pop out to you every now and then, and you're just kind of like, you're just kind of mind blown. The Bible is actually bookended with worship, and the Bible is actually bookended with the exact same song. The Bible is bookended. It starts with this song of Moses, and do you know what the very last song in the Bible is? a reference to the song of Moses. And so in Revelation 15, we begin again to see the song of God, the song of Moses come up. And this is what it says. Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. And this is a vision given to John. Seven angels were holding the last seven plagues, which would bring God's wrath into completion. I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire, and on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the enemy and his statue and the number representing his name. They were all holding harps that God had given to them, verse 3, and they were singing the song of Moses, which is a reference to Exodus 15, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, great and marvelous are your works." 
O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways. O King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are worthy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous deeds have been revealed. Isn't it so cool that the very first song in the Bible is also the very last song? It's because this whole story of Jesus is bookended by the great redemption of Christ on the cross. And a few minutes ago, I talked about this anthropomorphism, the kind of these characteristics that were given to God in this first song. And it's funny how then they were just characteristics. But when we get all the way to Revelation, the very last song in the Bible, it's act, Jesus is actually the fulfillment of those characteristics. We find out that Jesus is our rescuer. We find out that Jesus is our sovereign king. We find out that Jesus is our future hope. And it's because this whole thing is bookended with, with worship. And when we begin to do that in our lives and in the situations that come, that arise in our lives, good or bad, if we bookend them with worship because we trust Jesus and because we are faithful to him and his cause, because we know he loves us and he has a great plan for us, despite any of our situations, if we know that is the character of who Jesus is, then we begin to worship him in this place that is true and right. And we worship him in spirit and in truth. So this week, I encourage you to seek out the character of God when you worship, when you pray, when you read his word, when you have community together. Whatever the case may be, bookend every situation in your life with worship. And trust God to be faithful to the people who love him. Because all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Because of what Jesus did on the Christ, there is an empty cross for every, there's, there's, sorry, there's an empty grave for every situation in your life, for every fear, for every little bit of shame, for every little bit of sin or a lot of bit of sin, for everything in your life, there's an empty grave that Jesus overcame with his death on the cross. That is something to worship about because that is the character of Jesus. Jesus is the one who redeemed us because of that empty grave. He took all the stuff and he laid it upon himself for each one of us. And so I would implore us to respond accordingly. I would say at this point, it's probably a good time for us to respond in such a way that we worship the character of God, of who God is to us. Not just the stuff that he does, not just the outcomes, not just the resolutions of the situations in our lives, but in every situation in our lives, because of who God is, because he is our rescuer, he is our sovereign king, and he is our future hope. Amen, church? Is that something worth singing? Is that, is that worth praising? Is that worth celebrating who God is and how much he loves you? Yes. Well, let's take these next few moments to celebrate just that. Let's celebrate the risen king. Let's celebrate our sovereign king, our rescuer, our hero. Let's celebrate our future hope who is Jesus because there is an empty grave for everything in our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's sing.